Well, it's so wonderful to see so many of you here tonight. Um, like as Jess said, if you're new or visiting, a very warm welcome to you. We hope we'll get to know you a little bit more after the service. But if we haven't met before, my name is Boaz, and tonight it's really my honor to be able to preach the Word of God. Nobody remembers who came in second. Chances are you would have heard this phrase at one point or another, and it reminds us that if you want to be the greatest, if you want to be the best, you have to come in first. You have to come out on top. There's no two ways about it. Fun fact, I am a fiercely loyal Liverpool football fan. Now, for those of you who have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about, I'm talking about English soccer. You see, in the city of Liverpool in the UK, there's a football club there that goes by the name of the city, Liverpool. And in recent years, Liverpool has been hugely successful. They've reached multiple cup finals, won many trophies, enjoying great success. In fact, last season, they nearly made history by becoming the first team in England to win all four major trophies in just the one season. However, the key word here is nearly. They nearly made history. Because unfortunately, they fell at the final hurdle in Europe's biggest cup competition, the Champions League, losing out to Real Madrid in the, in the finals by one goal to nil. And they also fell in the English Premier League, losing the league title to Manchester City by one point. And even though they won two other cups, truthfully, no one will celebrate they're almost winning the unprecedented quadruple. And that's because nobody remembers who came in second. And that's why everybody wants to be first. Because culture has conditioned us to believe that if you want to be the best, if you want to be the greatest, you have to come in first. You have to be ahead of the rest. That way, we can, we can boast about it to other people. We can lord it over others. You might have won your three cups, but we won four. You might, have, you might own your own house. Well, I've got four houses, and they're all in Newtown. You might have your six-figure salary. Well, you know, I've got my 16-figure salary. Not that there's anything wrong with all this, but culture has taught us to believe that if you want to be the greatest, you have to be the best. You have to come out on top. But, I mean, who doesn't want to be great? Who doesn't want their life to amount to something significant? And did you know that Jesus actually calls us to be great as well? He did. He, he calls us to be great. But it's not exactly the way that the world would have us be great. You see, Jesus says that in the kingdom of God, greatness, well, it's a little bit different. In the kingdom of God, God, well, he's king. 
And because he's king, he gets to make up all the rules. And so he says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, look at my son. Look at Jesus. Watch him. Listen to him. Hear what he has to say. And so tonight we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about greatness in the kingdom of God. Tonight we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 20. And what I would love to do tonight is to do something radical, something very different. I would love for us to pull open our Bibles. So if you have it on your phone, pull out your phones, open those Bible apps. If you have it in paper form like Amy, fantastic. Pull, up on, pull open your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 20 because the verses that we're going to look at tonight from this chapter will not be on the screens. You're going to have to do the looking into your Bibles yourselves. So starting in verse 20, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. And by way of context, let me just briefly give you a, a, a background of what's happening here. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. And it's becoming apparent that he's something special. There's something unique about him. In fact, four chapters earlier, in Matthew chapter 16, Peter along with all the other disciples, they confess that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And so when we get to Matthew chapter 20, they're making their way towards Jerusalem. And in their minds, they're saying, oh, wow, Jesus, he's, he's truly special. He's about to establish the kingdom of God here. He's going to be king. And I want in on that. And so we get to verse 20. And the mother of two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, she comes onto the scene. And so look for yourself. Look at what she says in verse 20. Since then she came to the scene, she came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. Verse 21, what is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now to sit at someone's right hand or left hand is to essentially position yourself in a place of honor. Today we have that phrase, don't we? To be someone's right hand man, which basically means you're working very closely with that person at a very similar level. Someone who carries great authority and recognition. And so we can understand here that as a parent, this mother of these two disciples will want the best for her sons. After all, here is God in the flesh, seemingly about to establish his kingdom. So you want your sons to be placed in a position of honor. But look at what Jesus says in verse 22. He said, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Now in the Bible, whenever we see the word cup, it's often symbolic. It speaks figuratively of someone's divinely appointed destiny. Or in other words, it speaks figuratively of what God has in store for that person. And it comes in various forms in the Bible. For example, to speak of someone's cup can speak of God's blessing on that person. Like in Psalm chapter 16, it says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. 
You make my lot secure. Or you make my land, my possessions secure. So here a cup can represent blessing. But it can also represent God's wrath and justice. Like in Revelation 16, it says, God remembered Babylon, the great, no, no, that, that really wicked, evil city, and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. So here, cup represents God's wrath and justice. But when Jesus talks about the cup, he's talking about his impending death. You remember what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? What did Jesus pray? He said, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Or in other words, Jesus is saying, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering, of being crucified on the cross, of being separated from you on the cross, pass from me. And so when James and John come to Jesus to to ask to be placed in in a position of honor, he's he's saying to them, are you able to drink the cup of severe trials and even death like me? Who wouldn't want to be great? Who wouldn't like to be placed in a position of honor? But while the world chases greatness in the form of fame and power and fortune, in the kingdom of God, greatness is achieved through other means. So what are those means? What what does it look like? Well, tonight, let's look at two different aspects of the kingdom of God. Two things that contrast those found in the kingdom of God and those of the world. Both found here in Matthew chapter 20. The first point we can make from Matthew chapter 20 is that in the kingdom of God, disciples are destined to drink the cup. You say, disciples, drink the cup. Really? Don't take my word for it. Let's look at what Jesus says. Look again in your Bibles in verse 22. Jesus said to them, to James and John, Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. And look at what Jesus says in verse 23. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup. And we know later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12, James does indeed drink of Jesus' cup when he lives and dies for Christ as a martyr in the hands of King Herod by the sword. James drank the cup and also John in in Revelation chapter 1. John drinks of Jesus' cup when he's persecuted for his faith and then exiled onto the island of Patmos. So James and John, Jesus' disciples, drank the cup. But you say, well, that's James and John. Jesus is talking to James and John. He's not talking about us, not, not, not us Christians. Well, yes, Jesus is. He is talking to James and John. But he does make it clear elsewhere that if you are a follower of Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus, you too will drink the cup of suffering like Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16, 
Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now we hear that phrase, take up your cross, quite a bit, don't we? And it's basically a stigma of social and public disgrace that leads to a savage death. You can picture it in your mind. When Jesus carried his cross towards Calvary, he was surrounded by people that mocked him and scorned him. And here Jesus is calling us to take up your cross and follow him. If you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, be prepared to suffer ridicule, to suffer a loss of popularity, of favor, because the way that we are meant to live as disciples of Jesus is offensive to the world. Like how you might have to put your foot down on your sexual purity or your, per- your, your professional integrity or the way that you prioritize Sundays to attend church or how you, you resist temptation. If you are a disciple of Jesus, be prepared to suffer just as Jesus did. It won't be cheap. It won't come easy. If you are a disciple of Jesus, it won't be without a cost. But look at what Jesus promises in the next verse. Verse 25. He says, whoever wants to save their life, to save their life from opposition, from those around them, will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. In July 2018, many of you would have heard the story of how a Thai soccer team of boys and their coach were trapped in a cave that had flooded. And if you followed the rescue operation, you would know that they were trapped some four kilometers deep into the cave with roughly a kilometer of it completely submerged underwater. And so the only way that they they, they deemed would be a, a great way to rescue them would be to sedate the boys. Because they knew that these boys, they couldn't swim. Let alone try to do so under extremely muddied water. There was no way. And so if these boys wanted to be rescued, wanted to live, they would have to trust their lives into the hands of these divers. They would have to lose their lives. But can you imagine if one of these boys insisted, no, 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 no. I will save myself. I I will swim my way out of here. I'll do it on my own. There's no way he would have made it out alive because he doesn't have the expertise. He doesn't have the experience, the strength, the ability to, to save himself. If anybody wants to save their lives, to do things their way, to do things according to how the world does it, to live by popular social media opinions or or, or celebrities or appealing philosophies, if, if, if you find yourself swearing just because everybody around you swears or you joke coarsely in order to fit in or how you say, no, it's not stealing, it's, it's just a paperclip. Whoever would save themselves from opposition of those around them 
Jesus says that they will lose their lives. They will lose their life of, of innocence before God as they're filled with guilt. They will lose their heart for God. But anyone who will lose their life for Christ, to live for him, to carry their cross, to drink of his cup, Jesus says that they will find it. They will save it. They will discover a life filled with favor in God. A life of peace as you go to bed at night. A life that's just filled with joy in the Lord. As you live according to his ways. In the kingdom of God, Jesus' disciples are destined to drink the cup. And secondly, in the kingdom of God, greatness is reserved for those who are lost. Let's look at our Bibles again. Let's look at verse 25 and see what it says. Jesus called them, the disciples together, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, lord greatness over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Now, we don't have many servants in our context here in Australia, but I think we can understand that to be a servant is to be seen as something low, something of a lowly status. Servants, as the root word suggests, serve others. One of my Greek dictionaries defines uh, someone who serves as one to render assistance or help by providing certain duties, performing certain duties rather, often of a humble or menial nature. It's to render assistance or help. And we see this in Luke chapter 17. Here we have a master who calls his slave in to, to come and serve him while he eats and he drinks. Because a servant is one that performs certain duties to meet somebody else's needs. And if we think that servants are low, then slaves are lower. If we think that servants have a choice, slaves have no choice. The same Greek dictionary defines slaves as one completely controlled by someone else or something. In effect, the masters of these slaves have unlimited power over them. An example is in Matthew chapter 8, when a Roman centurion comes uh, towards Jesus and being a man under authority himself, he knows that if he gives a command to his slave, the slave will have to do this or that. Because the slave is subjected to a master's unlimited power and authority. But here, in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to be a servant or like a slave to other people thinking about others, caring for others, doing things, not expecting any profit 
or any thanks in return. Like how you might go out of your way to send someone a meal that you know is in need. Or how you, 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 you mow your neighbor's lawn. Or how you, 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 um, you, you visit someone in the hospital. Or, or the way that you seek someone who's hurting or lonely after church service. Or how you willingly use your resources to assist someone that you know you can help. As many of you know, I have two little kids who are age four and six years of age. And if you've been around little kids that age, you know that they are most adorable. They just love being with you, being around you. They love playing with you. And you know, one of the best things about being a dad is that you can get them to do things for you. It's fantastic. Like how if I'm looking for my phone, I'll say, kids, can you find daddy's phone? And off they go, looking high and low. I'm going to find it first. Or how if I'm out in the garden, doing a bit of gardening, they're, they're always so eager to come and water the plants. I remember um, one evening, I came back and I was just exhausted and just wanted to have a, a, a nap on the couch. And so I asked my daughter, Ariel, who was sitting there, I said, Ariel, is it okay if, if daddy took a nap here? Do you know what she said to me? She said, of course, Daddy. Please, take a nap. I'll get some cushions for you. I'll get you some blankets. Daddy, just have a nap. Now, you have to understand, she's never done that before. It's not something that happens in the Ang, in the, in the Ang household. So just take, take my word for it. So I wasn't going to say no if she was going to offer. But, you know, Jesus actually says that little children are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 18, it says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles themselves like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Like servants and slaves, children are ranked at the bottom of society, aren't they? They don't make decisions. They don't have any authority. But they're always so eager to help. And maybe that's something some of us need to remember tonight. To become like a child again. Eager to help. Eager to serve others. One with no authority. One with no agenda. Because in the kingdom of God, greatness is reserved for those who are lost. Now let's apply this. Let's look at what Jesus did in verse 28. So have a look again in your Bibles. Verse 28, it says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To put this into action, let me suggest two practical applications for us tonight. And if I haven't pushed you far enough, 
with your Bibles, let me push you further by suggesting that you should write these two things down. Two practical applications. If you want to move and, and, and shape your life in the direction of becoming great in the kingdom of God, two simple things that I hope that we can remember that begin with the word look. So firstly, look to serve. When was the last time you served someone? And I don't mean serving someone at Macker's or a cafe where you work as a waitress or barista. I, I don't mean serving your customers. I mean, when was the last time you served someone at home or at work or at church? When was the last time you made someone a cuppa or offered to send, uh, offered a ride to someone or, or offered to shout someone a meal? And if it's been a while... Can I suggest something? Start with something this week. Start with something small, something reasonable. You don't need to blow your budget to serve someone. You don't need to spend days planning and coordinating something. Just be reasonable. It's something thoughtful. And if you don't know what, ask. Ask those around you, how, how may I be of service? How may I help you? Ask God. Be, be open to, to where he might lead you. Be sensitive. Look around. Listen. Because it's amazing what hints people drop you when you're looking and listening. A thoughtless pilot got into an ill-equipped single-engine plane and took off. He didn't know much about how to handle the instruments. He just flew. The plane had no lights, but he was flying up to a little country airstrip where he would land, or at least he thought he would, before sunset. Unfortunately, he had strong winds coming against him, and he didn't make it in time. The sun had already settled behind the western mountains, and a haze was over the landing strip. Nearing the airstrip, he came down lower, but he could not make the boundaries of the runway. Panic seized him as he sensed he didn't have much fuel left. He being, and so he began to circle and, and realized that one of these circling moments would be his last, and that he would, he would crash to his death. Down on the ground, a man who was sitting on his porch had his sensitive ears pick up this, this drone of an engine just, just going round and around and around. And he thought, that guy's in trouble. Quickly, he sped over to the runway and, in his ute and began just driving up and down the airstrip with his high beams on, showing that young, inexperienced pilot how to find his way. The pilot turned and with a great sigh of relief, he began to land the plane. A near tragedy was averted by sensitivity to need. Who around you might be going round and round and round? Is there someone in your life who could do with some help? 
an arm around their shoulder, a phone call, a, a friend. Look to serve by serving someone this week. And secondly, look to give. When Jesus came, he said that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. But why did Jesus give his life? Why did he surrender it as a ransom for many? I believe that Jesus gave his life because of his love for the Father. Because Jesus longed to please the Father. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, The one who sent me, the Father who sent me, has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Jesus gladly gave his life because he longed to please the Father. And if pleasing the Father meant that he had to surrender his life and becoming obedient to even death on the cross, he would do it. Jesus looked to give. Let me tell you a true story that happened to me a few years ago. A really good friend of mine, he was going through a crisis. And truth be told, it was life-threatening. He was hospitalized and he really had no idea where his, when his next paycheck was going to come. And even though I was a father myself, I could only imagine the sort of pressures he was facing, not one, wondering whether his wife and kids were going to be okay. Anyway, one evening, I sensed a really strong prompting to give to him. And by give, I mean, I mean financially. And so I said to God, all right, God, you want me to give? How much? 100? 200? 500? How much, Lord? And I kid you not, the amount that came to my head to give to my friend was $5,000. Now, you have to understand that we didn't have much back then. And so to give $5,000 was a lot of money for us. $5,000, Lord, are, are you sure? Am I, am I just making this up? Really? Yes. Give him that much. I said, God, all right. It is a lot of money, but I'm going to do it in obedience to you. I'm going to trust you by faith that you would do with this as you will. And so I transferred the money later that night. And it wasn't until a few weeks later when I met my friend and he was just overjoyed by how we were able to bless him. And truth be told, if not for anything else, just being, being in a position to, to be able to bless him, that would have done me. Like, thank God that I could give a sizable amount of money, but to be a blessing, thank God for that. But not long after, I... I don't know how. I don't know where it came from. But I saw that in my bank account, there sat an amount of $10,000. 
$10,000. I showed Sue and Sue, and look, $10,000. How? God saw my heart, and he knew that I looked to please him. And even if that meant giving something that is really important to us, hear this. Whoever chooses to save their lives, rather, whoever chooses to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Who are you looking to please tonight, church? If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, how available are you when God calls you to give, to serve? Jesus says that it's not the rulers or the powerful who will be first in the kingdom of God. It's not the self-serving or the important who, who will be first. No, it will be the servants and the slaves and the children who will be first in the kingdom of God. It will be those who look to give and to serve. Just as how when Jesus looked to give his life, so too should we, church, give of ourselves to love, to give, and to serve just as he did. So, Father, we pray tonight. Lord, we know that you have blessed us and blessed us in abundance. And we have been so privileged to be called your children, your disciples. But Father, it means nothing unless you see our hearts and how we long to please you. How we long to give and to serve. So Father, despite the, the insecurities we may face, the uncertainties, the fears, whatever it is, oh God... We pray right now in our heart's desire that you would just see that we long to please you. And if you are willing, Lord God, that you will make us great in the kingdom, not the way that the world would do it, but just as how Jesus did, by giving his life as a ransom for many. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for your, your convictions, your promise, your, challenging, your challenges for us tonight. Won't you have your way in our lives? Because we pray all this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.